at the New Indian, we have with us Ambassador Rajiv Dogra, a career diplomat, an author, and an expert on India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan relations. Welcome to Reason, the New Indian's platform where we get to the reason behind the issues that concern you. Welcome, Ambassador. Thank you. I'm going to begin this conversation with the developments that we are witnessing in the neighborhood. Ever since the US withdrew, the NATO forces withdrew from Afghanistan, we know that Taliban has been sending very confusing signals. At one point, they said they are open to having a relationship with China. They also want business. They also want recognition from the West. We also know that for the first time, their relationship with Pakistan seems to be turning acidic, bitter, and now they're actually clashing with Pakistan army forces. What is really happening in Afghanistan? You know, yesterday evening, uh, uh, I thought I would have another look at Durand's curse. Uh, I had not really reread it. Uh, after it was published because once the work is over you move on to the next project and I was amazed at how prophetic I was uh, because you mentioned about Afghanistan's relationship with Pakistan which is sad and indeed that is exactly what I had predicted, predicted. that it would sad because it was an artificial relationship uh, in fact I am reminded of 1947 uh, when Liaquat Ali Khan, who was the Prime Minister of uh, Pakistan, asked Basha Khan, Frontier Gandhi, in the National Assembly, uh, is Pathan a community or a country? Basha Khan replied, Pathan is a community. Pakhtunistan will be our country. And we want people on both sides, Pathans on both sides, of Durand Lions to be a part of Pakhtunistan. So the answer was very clear that Pakistan is, for Pathans is an artificial uh, entity. Later in 1975, if I am not mistaken, his son Wali Khan was asked by a cheeky Punjabi journalist, uh, are you uh, a Pakistani, a Muslim, or a Pathan. So Wali Khan, the son of Frontier Gandhi, he replied, I am a 27-year-old Pakistani, a 1,000-year-old Muslim, a 6,000-year-old Pathan. So the answer is very clear. The second part, you started with US leaving mm -hmm. Afghanistan. US is not the first occupier to be humiliated in Afghanistan. Uh, Soviet Union, which later became Russia. They do say that Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. Well, yes. In fact, one of the Taliban chiefs has recently used that term to warn Pakistan that uh, Afghanistan is the graveyard of empire. So, empires. So, watch out. Uh, don't try the same stunt again. Uh, so, 
there is no doubt that Afghanistan has been tortured through its history by foreigners. Uh, Alexander comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Many others. Uh, in fact, there's another interesting anecdote about Alexander. When he reached Afghanistan, his mother wrote to him. So the letter says that, look, you conquered Anatolia, you conquered Iraq, you conquered Iran, all of this in one year. And you are stuck in Afghanistan for three years. What's wrong? What's happening? Hmm. Now, Alexander sent back a letter to her and along with that, some of the earth of Afghanistan. And he requested her to spread it around her palace. Uh, when she spread it around her palace, her nobles, her uh, advisors and so on, who were very peaceful till then, very friendly with each other, suddenly started fighting. So Afghanistan has a DNA in its soil which encourages strife. Uh, so I am not uh, surprised uh, at what is happening. Uh, but that brings me to the question, Pakistan created Taliban, Pakistan supported Taliban. Do you think that Taliban was actually playing the Pakistan army or does it look like that uh, Pakistan army may still have something in its kitty to harm Afghanistan, to harm Taliban? America and Pakistan created Taliban or encouraged its creation. America got humiliated uh, by the Taliban, which it created, uh, and it had to retreat after 20 years plus. Pakistan no doubt thought that it was a different ball game altogether as far as it was concerned. They call Taliban its strategic asset. I mean, they've been using this term so often. They think that their game in Afghanistan has been bigger than the great game itself. Exactly. The only thing is that the rules of the game can change uh, unexpectedly. It happens all the time and it has happened in Afghanistan. The second thing is our mistakes, the global mistakes. We have been taken in by Pakistan's pressure words that it is a strategic positioning for the Western world at least, sometimes even for China and for the Soviet Union occasionally. And West in particular got taken in by its so-called strategic positioning. But people forget that much more than Pakistan, it is Afghanistan which is positioned strategically. Look at its neighborhood, starting from Pakistan to Iran, to Soviet Union earlier, China, and not too far from India. So, Afghanistan has surrounded itself with countries which are important, and hence its importance, and hence the possibility that it can play one against the other, or it can play all sides at the same time. And uh, Pakistan thought that it was cleverer by the half, that it could control Afghanistan and its creation, the Taliban, or its half-creation, the Taliban. But that is, that is not how the games are played. Uh, the great game previously 
In fact, great game ruined uh, Britain. Exactly. People don't know that the cause of ruination of Britain or East India Company initially was the great game that they pretended to play. Absolutely. Now, uh, let's go, go back to the, this Pakhtun identity. We did see a Pashtun movement in Pakistan in the last few years. We are seeing this resurgence of Pakhtun identity which you very eloquently uh, referred to when Wali Khan said that you know we are basically more than 6000 year old identity. What is this Durand line, Durand line basically curse, the book that you wrote Durand's curse? What is the curse really? When I started uh, researching for the book, I had no clear idea why I was writing this book. I mean, after all, many Indian authors have referred to Durand Lyon and said that there should be the border, recognized border between Afghanistan and Pakistan, because that is the line. And this was the theme song of most of the Western writers. Uh, but then I started looking at the British writing. And I was surprised that British who was so particular in giving details of every agreement just did not go beyond a single line on Durand's agreement. Uh, to give you a very brief background, what I found was that the British young officers in uh, the beginning of 19th century uh, were taken up by this very romantic vision of going into these wild lands and taming them. And that is why the name Great Game, it is started by a young captain called James Connolly, later taken up by uh, Kipling who made it famous. But really that was the game that they would go into Afghanistan, occupy it, make it their own uh, little kingdom and keep Russia away. Russia at that time was 2000 miles away from anywhere near India. So the British fear was totally unfounded. And Russian maps incidentally till the beginning of 19th century, till about 1838 did not show anything beyond Kiva. So Russia kept on saying... But it, no it, Russia was an expansive empire it had become an empire by occupying more territory on the uh, western side of uh, its border. Eastern side of its border also in this yeah, case. In this case yes. And uh, it kept saying we have no interest beyond the Amodarya, which is the border of Afghanistan with Central Asian states today. And it kept its word. The only thing is, that Brits were so taken up with this romantic idea of occupying the highlands of Afghanistan that they, they totally ignored all this and they totally ignored the fact that Russia was overstretched already uh, and uh, it will not be able physically to reach any part of Afghanistan besides the fact that it kept saying we are not interested. There was of course that niggling worry that Napoleon and I think it was Paul I of Russia in 1800 decided that you know let's march towards India and Napoleon wanted to come to India on a, riding on an elephant and found to found a new religion. But 
that was just a fanciful idea which he gave up but paul once sent about 30000 cossacks who got trapped in ice even before they could cross central asia so that was given up before it be began as a serious sort of a venture but as i said the great game was so so fascinating for these youngsters that they got taken in by the idea and they made sure that their superiors were taken in so the governor generals of east india company also thought that they'll become immortal if they uh, uh, reach afghanistan and in a way by reaching afghanistan they would be preventing uh, others whether it's france iran russia or so on so where did where did this mortimer durant's line come from how did it happen why did he draw this line between between uh, the afghan pashtuns and now the pakistani pashtuns why was this line drawn what was the aim so uh, i'm glad you're persisting with this question yeah. uh, because that was the answer to my quest why this line so it was part of that great game syndrome that maybe india would be attacked by russia or something else so we must have a, a, a little more territories so as to safeguard india's interests because essentially it was a question of going further northwards uh, and at least coming to the foothills of the mountains so that invaders do not have an easy access to rest of india mm. now it was a very clever plan by the foreign secretary of india at that time mortimer durant uh by this time britain had taken over from east india company so he went there in october when his agent there a chap called pine uh, a britisher told him that the amir amir abdur rahman uh, at that time has health issues and those health issues tend to accentuate towards winter and he is not quite in control of his senses now this was the great discovery i made by looking into british archives looking into medical records of that king or amir by british doctors one female doctor and later on a male doctor now they both had the same diagnosis that something goes wrong with them as winter approaches so this foreign secretary mortimer durant goes to kabul presents him despite britain and afghanistan having agreed just a couple of months earlier that no document between them would be treated as legal if it is signed in any other language than pashto presents him with a one page draft hmm. with seven small paragraphs written only in english this was a language that the amir neither knew nor spoke or could write yes and he just signed on that blank piece of paper gifting me 40000 square miles of afghan territory not just afghan territory also baluch territory yeah now this was an amazing act of generosity on part of an amir who was otherwise a miserly chap who had expanded afghan territory by three times now why would a man like that a person who's expanded who's revisionist uh gift away 40000 square miles just because someone has asked and probably he didn't even know what he was gifting away yeah, because, because he, he didn't, didn't know the language he didn't know the language and there was no afghan present there only one person 
was allowed to be behind a parda and that was the father of Faz Ahmed Faz, the Pakistani poet. And everyone who was there, including Pine and Faz Ahmed Faz's father, Sultan, they ran away from Afghanistan within a day or within a couple of days. Durand himself sailed away the next morning down the river Kabul because it was all done uh, in, in, in a very, very... Uh, casual? Not just casual, mysterious. Yes. I think it was, it was an act of great cheating on part of Britain against Afghanistan. Deception, Deception I think, is the better word. You are absolutely right. So, this Durand line then became a sore point with Afghans. They never accepted it. In fact, the third Anglo-British war was entirely because of this. And within four years of signing this uh, document in 1893, Amir started arming Pathans on, this, on the other side of Durand line so that they could revolt against the British. And that is that 1897 is what people like Kipling and Churchill wrote about. So, uh, uh, Afghans and Pathans have always resented this document. Uh, Is it in their historical memory? Do the current Taliban leadership believe in this? Do they refer to the Durant's curse? Well, uh, I am glad uh, they do. And uh, I must tell you, Durant's curse has been translated into both Pashto and Farsi and uh, some of the Taliban leaders have been photographed reading my book. Oh. So uh, if their conviction about what I have written has increased, has strengthened about the invalidity of Durand's line, then I am happy that I have done some uh, service to the cause of Afghans, to the cause of Patans. Uh, because, because it's an artificial creation. And let me tell you one more thing. The British government of that time, the British Foreign Office, wrote to Mortimer Durand that we know you signed this agreement, we've taken note of it and so on. Uh, and we also agree with you that it is only an area of influence. It's not a border. It became but oh, they wrote that. They acknowledge they, that it's not a border. It's not a border. It's there in my book. I've yeah. given chapter and verse of this, quoting British sources. It became a border in British eyes only in 1947 because they wanted a Pakistan which was totally in their grip, mm -hmm. strategically. Uh, so it has been an artificial creation all through. And as you put it very rightly, it was an act of deception from the beginning till the end, when from area of influence, it became a border. Well, that brings me to the question that, is Pakistan a natural state? According to me, no. Because uh, if it was a natural state, it would have existed much earlier. Uh, it would have existed 5000 years back, which Pakistan claims that, you know, Mohanjadaro and Harappa and so on are evidence that yes. it existed long back. But, you know, you can't argue with fools. Uh, so, uh, Pakistan is not a natural state. And let me give you another example. Let me quote Imran Khan. Uh, 
he gave an interview to daily star of bangladesh uh, about 7-8 years back and he said that you know i had gone to bangla uh, to dhaka in 1971 to play a cricket match and i heard pakistani army officers uh, saying black little man shoot him i'm hearing the same thing about pathans now hmm. now when you have such divisions where one section of the society is looked at with contempt yeah, i mean pathans in this case when you have a nation where muhajirs are treated as third class citizens how can you call it a natural state it is an artificial collection held together somehow well um the critics could argue that india is also an artificial state we have several ethnicities we have several nations within nation we have bengalis we have kashmiris we have tamil we have malayalis all of them are different identities so why is india natural state and pakistan is not you are right we have kashmiris we have tamils we have malayalis punjabis and sindhis and so on and that is the strength because the idea of coexistence is natural to india and that is what gives the natural homogeneity to this idea of india uh india is not the only country which has multiplicity of cultures you look around the world america prides itself in that mm-hmm. so america is not a natural state if india is not a natural state so is the case with america so is the case with china uh so i think that is a false argument uh what could be said is is india accommodative of influences is the argumentative indian an accepted idea that that should be the lodestone that should be the litmus test and i think there india fares very well that india despite its diversity has homogeneity which is unique to the country uh whether whether it is the scriptures whether it is some of the epics they are the ones that i mean the, they 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 in fact make the civilization they are the ones that give strength to the idea of india hmm. does pakistan have even a single scripture or an epic which gives it an idea of pakistan perhaps Jinnah's and Iqbal's manifesto of having an Islamic state. Well, people write manifestos, but do they believe in it? Because Jinnah, since you mentioned Jinnah, immediately after the partition, he requested the Indian High Commissioner uh, in Karachi. Karachi was the capital at that. In time. fact, you have the distinction of being the last Council General of Karachi. so he uh, requested him to or he asked him to request jawahar lal on his behalf that 
please do not take the Bombay residence as evacuee property because I want to go back there. Hmm. So Jinnah was not convinced that he had done the right thing. In fact, on his dying moment, my book, Where Borders Bleed, has this entire thing. Uh, his dying moment, he said that I have committed a mistake. So please, the idea so of Pakistan, if, if, the idea of Pakistan was smashed in 1971 by Pakistanis. Fair enough. And if the idea has already been demolished in 1971, are we foreseeing further disintegration of Pakistan? Because there is a Pashtun movement. We also know there is a Baloch movement against the idea of Pakistan, if there is, which you know they claim to have. Is Pakistan heading towards disintegration? Well, I knew you were trying to provoke me and I'll very willingly fall into that trap. Uh, Pakistan is not a healthy state by any means. Uh, let me give you another example. If you ask a Pakistani where does he, be, he come from, he'll probably name the area or the colony that he comes from. Then if you probe further, he'll say Karachi or Lahore or whatever. And then still if you insist, then he'll come to the province. And finally they took to Pakistan. Uh, whether it will remain as Pakistan is not for us to speculate. It is for Pakistanis themselves to decide. But for the world, the region may be a more stable place, more at peace with itself if Pakistan was not there in the shape and form that it is today. Because it is the source of all troubles, whether you talk in terms of what is happening in Afghanistan or in terms of, you know, the, the occasional forays into uh, across the LOC and across the Indo-Pak border, it's, it's not a healthy state of affairs. So, Pakistan in the shape it is today or in, in the form that it is uh, bequeathed for itself is neither good for itself, for its people's development, nor for the region. Let's talk about Balochistan. Balochistan, in fact, was uh probably the first independent country soon after uh, partition happened. But then Pakistan usurped Balochistan. That's what the Baloch nationalists say. How strong is their argument? Not just Baloch nationalists, but Jinnah also said the same. The Prince of Kalat or the King of Kalat. Kalat was the biggest amongst Baluch states uh, and regarded as representative of Baluchistan. Had employed Jinnah as his advocate, as his lawyer. And Jinnah had happily done that on the basis of commission, where the argument was that Baluchistan was not a part of Pakistan. And that went on for some time till Jinnah realized that now he has become the uh, the karta dharta of Pakistan, so he can't associate himself with uh, the same argument. So the reason why I'm elaborating that is twofold. Number one, you said Jinnah 
believed in the idea of in Pakistan and so on. Now, if he believed in that, why should he represent Baluchistan as a separate entity? The second thing is that Baluchistan found itself outmaneuvered because Jinnah had uh, left its cause or left its case uh, and it could not outfight the Pakistani army. So that was the reason. But Balochistan has always resented the fact that it was not given the freedom of choice. And it has also resented the fact that it has always been treated stepmotherly, though in area it is the biggest province in Pakistan. And in terms of natural resources, it has the biggest share in Pakistan of natural resources, whether it's gas or gold or whatever. And uh, does does Iran, which shares a border with Balochistan, do they also recognize this argument or no? No, Iran has its own part of Baluchis, uh, where it has uh, its own issues. Uh, Iran wants to stay away from what is happening in Pakistan or what might happen in Pakistan for two reasons. Number one, there is the Shia Sunni angle. There are 20% Shias in Pakistan at any given time. So it doesn't want uh, that issue to get confused. The second is that uh, it does not want Pakistan on its wrong side when it has a larger issue with countries like Saudi Arabia. So more than anything is, is, is the geostrategic equation that decides Iran's uh, viewpoint. So would it be in their interest to have an independent Balochistan? You know, uh, I can't speak on behalf of the government of India because uh, I have no position anymore. No, I'm asking you as an expert and an analyst and try to tell us, explain it to us from the perspective of Iran. What would be their interest in the region? I, I don't think I should speak on behalf of Iran, but uh, since you asked me, uh, I think the way things are developing and the way Baluchis have been treated uh, by every Pakistani leader, be it Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, Musharraf or uh, the present regime, is not a fair treatment. Uh, they, they have been attacked by gunships, they have been bombed out of shape uh, and they have been kept in miserable conditions by any standards of civility. Uh, be it in terms of education, healthcare. Uh, so while they have extracted the maximum out of Balochart, they have not given back to the people. For example, the Gwadar, Baluchis are not allowed any longer to buy land there or to settle there. They are not even allowed access to the port. And it's their own land. It's their own land and their own sea which gave them sustenance. They are not allowed to fish any longer in that sea. So, when you have multiple causes of resentment, the issue really is uh, how long can it last? Whether Baluchis will want to separate, the answer perhaps is in their rebellion. Otherwise, the rebellion would not be as long lasting as it has been. Whether it is possible for them to separate, I have my question marks on that. 
because Baluchis essentially are just about 5 to 6 million people. Pakistan has tried to change the demographics by settling in Punjabis there, so the population is more. But essential Baluchis are just about 5 to 7 million people. For them to take on the might of the Pakistani state uh, in any uh, conclusive way is a difficult task. Uh, let me come to my home state, Jammu and Kashmir. We know that uh, because of CPEC, China got access in Pakistan-occupied Kashmir and Gilgit-Baltistan. Now, we also know that there is uh, dissension. We are seeing dissidents coming out on the streets. We are seeing people in Gilgit-Baltistan raising slogans against Pakistan army. And we are seeing some kind of movement in POK as well. Is it widespread? Is it popular? Uh, or is India doing its propaganda that we are just blowing it out of proportion? What exactly is the situation in POK and Gilgit-Baltistan? I'm glad you're making the distinction because normally our impression is that POK is just the entire thing. Uh, most people uh, associate uh, Gilgit-Baltistan uh, as a blank in their mind. They are not aware that there are two entities called Gilgit-Baltistan. The fact is that these were called northern areas earlier. 78,000 square kilometers of, in my term, POK is Gilgit-Baltistan. Mm -hmm. Only about 28,000 square kilometers is POK, the Musafarabad uh, area. Uh, China, of course, was gifted access to that entire area in 1963. Yes. By Pakistan when it gave away about 5,000 square kilometers of POK to China. So, CPEC and whatever you call it is a new phenomena which has not made material difference in terms of India resenting the fact that a part of India, that means POK, has been given away to China and given, it's been given the access to that. Uh, so that's a long-standing uh, grudge that India has, and validly so. Uh, in fact, the day it was announced that Pakistan is gifting away that uh, territory, Sardar Swaran Singh was in Pakistan for negotiations with uh, Pakistan on JNK only. Uh, and he came back by the next flight. Uh, so, as far as the local uh, frustration with Pakistan is concerned is the same story as in Baluchistan. The only thing is that story has, been not, has not been told widely within Pakistan or in India or rest of the world because the area is vast and pop population is sparse. And moreover, in the so-called POK, Pakistan made sure that its demographics changed. There are more Punjabis settled there today than original Kashmiris. There are still Kashmiris, but there again, the multiplicity of them had been sent to UK as a constant pinprick on the British psychology that, look, these are refugees from Kashmir. Mm. 
So uh, it's a complex uh, issue uh, and there are no easy solutions for the simple reason that the population is not large enough to have an effective say either within the uh, region or in the outside world. So to say that India is supporting anything there I think would not be correct. Uh, I wish that we had made sure that people's voice was heard more in India. There was more awareness of the fact that the entire POK is not just Muzaffarabad but a much larger entity. Why did India not actually pay attention to the occupied territory that belonged to it? What was the reason? Why did we not know? I mean, Pakistan knows everything about this side of Kashmir, but we did not in our public narrative, public discourse, we did not have enough literature, we did not have enough information, we did not hear stories about what was happening to people under Pakistan's occupation. That's a sad story. You know, when, when you are on the back foot, you cannot claim to know what is happening in front of you. When you are already saying that let us negotiate with Pakistan on Kashmir, what are you going to negotiate with Pakistan on? Are you going to negotiate with them on getting POK back? Will Pakistan agree to it? But till 2019, it was always the other way around. It was always whether we would be giving, granting Kashmir to Pakistan, whether we would be granting autonomy to Kashmir, self-rule to Kashmir, independence to Kashmir, whether we would be resolving it through United Nations resolutions. We never talked about Pakistan-occupied Kashmir, Gilgit-Baltistan. That's exactly why I'm, what I'm saying. That the moment you agree to talk to Pakistan on Kashmir, you have to ask yourself, why are we doing that? After all, Pakistan never said that it is willing to negotiate on POK or whatever. It was only we who agreed to talk to Kash uh, Pakistan on Kashmir. I uh, told you about Sardar Swaran Singh's uh, visits to Pakistan post-1962, starting in 1963. And in one of his uh, discussions with Bhutto, it became so bad uh, because Bhutto's demands kept increasing. Give me the valley, give me Ladakh, give me that. So when he came back, there was a newspaper headlines uh, and probably uh, some comment in parliament that Swaran Singh has come back with only Kachua in his hand, meaning Kathua in his hand. So, as I said, when you are on back foot yourself, then only God can help you if he decides to help you. So, you are right, we have to sort of rethink our policy. And we, uh, have not, uh, we have not done any rethinking yet? No, talking about it is one thing. And we have two resolutions in parliament that the entire POK belongs to us. POK plus the northern areas mm -hmm. called Gilgit Baltistan belongs to us, uh, that is alright as uh, things go. Uh, but when and if there would be movement forward on that, when and if we will tell Pakistan that we are not going to talk on Kashmir with you, that remains to be seen. So there is a question mark on that. There is a question mark. 
now coming to we touched Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, we touched upon Balochistan, my home state Jammu and Kashmir. I want to know about Sindh. We often read reports that there is protest, there is dissension, there is uh, that Sindhis are not happy with Pakistan army, the Punjabi Pakistan army. Is that, um, is that account true or is it something that we make up? You see, it is episodical. I mean, firstly, again on Sindh, we must uh, appreciate the fact or understand the uh, facts on ground that it is no longer just Sindhis who make Sindh. Uh, it is Sindhis, yes, they are still the majority there, but there is also a substantial minority of Mohajits. For example, Karachi for long years, the uh, municipal corporation, the local elections have been won by Mohajits. Similarly, in Hyderabad, Sindh, there is a Hyderabad and Sindh also, the majority is Mohajits. So, cities in Sindh have a large composition of Mohajits. Uh, the interior area, the small towns and villages are majority Sindhis. Both Mohajirs and Sindhis are resentful of the fact that like others, non-Punjabis, whether it's Pathans or Baluchis, they have been not given equal treatment by the Pakistani state and Pakistani establishment. They are also resentful of the fact that they are not given equal opportunities in the army because army is principally Punjabi dominated and second community is the Pathan. But mere resentment does not give you anything. I mean you may have uh, periods where it boils over to agitations. You had famous agitations by Mohajis led by Altaf Hussain in the late 80s, early 90s. But then it died down when the army came down very heavily on them. Uh, similarly, there was a GSN movement in 70s, uh, but uh, uh, that again petered out uh, because uh, the lack of resources, because also uh, of the strength of the establishment. Uh, so I, I don't think at the moment there is anything that gives uh, any apprehension of a, of a large-scale uprising in Sindh uh, and, and uh, you know beyond the everyday frustration uh, there are no causes also. If, uh, if uh, Balochistan and then uh, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, Gilgit Baltistan, POK, if we see uprisings in all these uh, territories and among all these ethnicities do you think that Pakistan army can sustain the, the idea of Pakistan which is prevalent right now and do you think that, um, that, that in the long run all these tiny, let us say the, all these tiny ethnicities become nations in themselves, do you think they are sustainable ideas? You left out the TTP. TTP of course. <laughs> You know, it is all in the realm of speculation that whether Balochistan will become a separate country or uh, Khabar Pakhtunkhwa will become a separate country. There is also a resentment that, uh, you know, Afridis and so on 
were deprived of their separate existence by merging into Khabir Pakhtunkhwa. Hmm. All these are there, but these these are, uh, as I said, uh, at the moment storms, but containable storms. Uh, TTP is a more serious storm at the moment because uh, remember a few years back, TTP came almost 40 within 40 kilometers of Islamabad, yes. and there was a real fear that it might take over the capital. And that is when Pakistan requested America to use its drones to bomb out uh, the, the major figures of TTP, which it did successfully. Uh, it is still not that potent a force once again, but a recent statement by Pakistan's interior minister uh, put the figure of TTP cadres at about 50,000, uh, which is not a small number. So there are these... Uh, eruptions which are taking place constantly in Pakistan and more recently, uh, more often in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, in the frontier areas. Uh, whether uh, these eruptions uh, become a storm remains to be seen. And given that India shares border with, uh, with Pakistan, do you think it will, many people have said, many experts have been saying it for very long that an unstable Pakistan, a destabilized Pakistan will be harmful for India, that it will bring more instability in India. Do you agree with that point of view? I think that's the most naive view or theory that has been put forward by people. A stable Pakistan is I mean, it's the same thing as saying that, you know, if uh, Pakistan was both East Pakistan and East Pakistan, it would have been good. My response to that is that just imagine your neck, India being the neck, and you are being squeezed from both sides. Would that be good? So, 1971 was a brilliant uh, stroke by uh, Mrs. Gandhi, and East Pakistanis themselves rose up against Pakistan and created Bangladesh. Stability in Pakistan has never been good for India, whether it was during Zia's time, it was a very stable time, Musharraf's time, it was a very stable time. The amount of terrorism which happened in India was really painful. Yes. People might, uh, you know, have a different... Bleeding India by a thousand cuts. Yeah. So, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, who was again uh, presiding over a stable Pakistan, was he good for India? He was the one who coined this uh, term, leading India by thousand cuts. Uh, when I was in Karachi, someone told me that the then foreign minister of Pakistan, in fact, I've written it in my book, said, I wish there were two atomic bombs in both my hands. One I'll put over Delhi, the other I'll put over Bombay. Bombay at that time. So, a stable Pakistan does not necessarily mean a healthy India. Uh, whether it is stable or unstable, the aim or the objective of the Pakistani establishment remains the same. And that is to reduce India to their size and to avenge Bangladesh. One last question or maybe two. Uh, India's relationship with Afghanistan, we've been historically friends, 
with Afghanistan. But then during Taliban's time, India has India took a very clear stand that they will we will not deal with Taliban. But ever since the NATO forces withdrew from Afghanistan and Taliban took over this time, uh, we do not hear much about this line that India is still is basically rigid and it will not talk to Pakistan uh, to Taliban. What has changed in our policy? Has anything changed in our policy vis-a-vis -vis Taliban? You know, long back, Chanakya had uh, given out his theory of Raja Mandala, which meant that, you know, your immediate neighborhood, it is difficult to have friends. Uh, but neighbors beyond the immediate neighborhood should be your friends or can be your friends. Uh, so let's, let's put that theory to test in terms of Taliban. Uh, yes, Taliban have not really been soft on India as Kandahar episode showed mm -hmm. and as their uh, actions overall showed. But at the same time, by not talking to pa uh, Taliban, by, by uh, not dealing with Taliban, what does that earn you? The, it all it turns is the possibility that they will be averse to anything positive towards India. Uh, they might train a few more terrorists and send down to India. In fact, the first Taliban government, uh, when Rabani was the president, uh, Pakistani ISI sort of approached him and said, we want 5,000 fighters to go to India. So he said, why 5,000? I'm willing to give you 50,000, 1 lakh. You just have to name it. So, do you want a situation where Taliban becomes your sworn enemy and wants to act against you? Or do you want to reach out to them so that, you know, there, there is a possibility of keeping a connection open and uh, perhaps some good might come out of it, if not for India, uh, Taliban or... So, then why doesn't this argument apply to Taliban also that if Taliban becomes stronger and if Taliban is more stable, uh, just like when Pakistan was more stable, we saw cross-border terrorism, we saw instability within India. Why do you think Taliban will not do that once it becomes more powerful? Well, there, there, there are uh, many uh, angles to it, there are many dimensions to it. Firstly, Taliban and Pakistan have to be acting in concert in order to pose a major threat to India in terms of sending Taliban cadres, uh, which at the moment is not happening. I mean, Taliban and Pakistan are not really the best of friends uh, at the moment. So that is a positive. Uh, but even if they were the best of friends, uh, you can at least reduce that possibility by keeping your line open with Taliban. Uh, maybe a, a, a sort of an irrigation scheme there or a hospital there or supply of medicines there will enable you to reach out to the right quarters and you know present the facts that we have nothing against Afghanistan or Afghan people or even against Taliban uh, except for, you know, promoting the human rights and promoting goodwill and relations. So, I don't see any harm in 
reaching out and stretching a hand of friendship or understanding towards the Taliban regime. Uh, you, you are like any other human being unhappy with the fact that they are not treating their women the way they should be treated. They are not giving them the opportunity for education or free movement. But you know, you can't. But then there are several countries in the world who have. Iran, very, Iran, yeah, for yeah, example. Yeah. But you have excellent, excellent relationships. Yeah. Uh, my last question. Since Pakistan gifted um, part of JNK's territory to China, China also made inroads through CPEC into POK, Gilgit, Baltistan. If, if and when. India does decide that, okay, enough is enough. We need to take back our own territory. Do you envisage India then getting into a bigger, major confrontation with China over JNK? Well, uh, I don't think China is going to wait for uh, a situation like this to develop. If China wants uh, to 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 have a scrap with India uh, or wants to irritate India or wants to confront India uh, or wants uh, a, a mini war with India, uh, then it is not going to look for excuses from the Pakistani uh, POK side. Uh, it, it will have its own uh, ways to, to ensure that what it wants gets accomplished. In fact, I have written about it in war time. Uh, that is what the book is about. And uh, I apprehend that uh, China will start some such thing uh, much earlier than it does with Taiwan. Uh, so China uh, is not looking towards Pakistan to act its tactical crutch. Uh, Pakistan, China might want Pakistan's strategic help in case of uh, a confrontation. And Pakistan, in turn, may be looking to China to be its major support in case of a war with India. I hope it never happens. These things never happen because any conflict is bad for both sides. But uh, I, I, I doubt if China uh, is going to reach out to Pakistan and say that, you know, start something so that we can get into that. Uh, that that's that's not the way China would want uh, uh, its its strategic calculus to develop. Thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. Hope to see you again. Thank you. It's a pleasure.